The Knowledge Series, a podcast from Thomson Reuters. Hello, my name is Ben Firth. I'm the Head of Client Management for HiQ at Thomson Reuters. And today we have the great privilege in speaking with Cathy Jacob, who is the Head of Knowledge and Information at the Financial Ombudsman. Really great treat for us today. She managed to get into the office, enjoy the views of London skyline. However, due to COVID, I had to stay at home. Cathy gave us a really good insight into the world of knowledge from a financial ombudsman perspective. And what is refreshing is their legal challenges, but they're not a law firm. Cathy was a breath of fresh air. I mean, listening to some of her stories, I joked that we could probably have drowned in tea for a couple of hours listening and talking around the world of the ombudsman and just really understanding how impartial they have to be. And that is a challenge within the legal world in itself. So I hope you like listening to Cathy as much as I did talking with her today. It's a chance to grab a cup of tea. Enjoy the episode. The Knowledge Series. So listen, thank you for taking the time out of your, your very busy day. We're focusing the series, as you know, on tacit knowledge. And that's something hopefully we can explore over the next sort of 20, 30 minutes. We'll see however long this takes us. But before we kind of jump into that, some people will be listening to this series, be thinking we've spoken to law firms, we've spoken to a few other different organizations, and now we're speaking to the financial ombudsman. What, what is this and how did you end up there? I'll talk about the Financial Ombudsman first, because it's been around longer than I've been at the Financial Ombudsman. It was set up by an Act of Parliament, the Financial Services and Markets Act in 2000, and it is an alternate dispute resolution service for consumers to bring their complaints against financial services and to have those complaints resolved if they are not satisfied by what the company has uh, agreed with them around their their issues. There's two stages to it. There's informal resolution, and then it can go to an ombudsman decision, which is legally binding. We're part of the financial uh, regulatory family, so that obviously there is the FCA that governs us, and like points our CEO publishes our rules, which are the DISP rules. But we do have a a separate relationship. We are independent and we are impartial. We obviously keep abreast of what the FCA is doing, what they're going to proposing and how that's going to affect how we resolve complaints. Equally, we talk to them when we're seeing trends in the uh, financial services world or in a particular product that we're concerned about that is more not one-off complaints. But what we really want to do is prevent something, the scale of PPI happening again. Right. So we want to head it off at the pass, uh, either by talking to the businesses themselves or if it's a, a wider, has wider implications, liaising with the FCA as well. For me, I joined the Financial Ombudsman Service six years ago as head of knowledge and information services. Previously, I had been working in knowledge and information at law firms. So either doing pure knowledge, leading teams, all that good stuff. Ironically, I was heavily involved in procurement. So curing the services of Thomson Reuters and dare I mention your competitors, which won't go down too well. I did a lot of that. I also worked in banking, investment banking and retail banking as well. 
I started my career in public libraries and moved to university libraries and ended up as a researcher at newspaper libraries as well. So I've picked up a lot of different skills over the years and I'm often plumbing the depths of my brain to go, I've seen that before, I've heard of that before. And bearing in mind, I've been working in the industry since the early 90s. There's a lot of plumbing sometimes that has to go down. There's a lot of knowledge there. There's a lot of knowledge. (laughs) Let me just jump back into the ombudsman situation. Is it a service that anybody can use? Or is is it almost like a free service? Or is it something that you would need to be commercially engaged with yourself to actually take advantage of this service? No. So any consumer can bring a complaint to us. They are not charged. We have a funding mechanism that is very complicated. We don't need to go into that. Don't worry. We don't need to go into that at all. But the consumer doesn't pay okay. if they bring a complaint to us. And the, the, and the ombudsman is, is essentially staffed by qualified lawyers who sort of uh, consultants who come, I'm guessing, with a world of different experiences to give that situation the, the best opportunity to, to go forward. And I think you said to me once that you represent the claimant, not the firms. I think that's something that always resonates with what you said to me last time we spoke. No, no, that's not the case. Ah. So we're there to investigate the complaint. So um, we're impartial and we're independent. Interesting. That is the key thing. We must reach impartial and fair and reasonable outcomes. And that can be fair and reasonable for the business as much as the consumer I would love to understand, and you probably can't tell me, so feel free to to say you can't say or no comment, but I'd love to understand a situation you've worked in over the years of the most high profile, you know, case or situation. Are you you allowed to say anything? No. (laughs) Okay. And also because I can see where you're coming from is from a legal background, Yes, of course, we've got an excellent legal team at the Financial Ombudsman that are there to assist with the very complicated issues that require legal advice and to manage our our risk as well, our reputational risk in this area. However, we're not lawyers, we're ombudsmen, and there's a difference. We have to consider relevant law along with the regulations, what the industry codes of practice are, and where relevant, we have to consider what was good practice, industry practice at the time. But ultimately, we have to come up with a fair and reasonable decision. So we take account of the law, but sometimes the law might not be fair and reasonable in this particular circumstance. So you apply common sense? apply a lot of different things which is why it has to be very detailed reasoning we really like critical thinking that's absolutely essential to our work but also we have to work out can we actually deal with this complaint because we have a lot of jurisdiction rules we need to work out what happened what should have happened what's gone wrong who's responsible whether the complainant has lost out financially and how things can be put fairly back to 
where they were before all this happened. Thinking about that, and I can just imagine the diversity of different scenarios that happen that, that comes across the desk here. How does the knowledge manager manage this knowledge? Because you must have every day is a different day there. That's the only way I can think about it. If you think about a classic law firm who we work with day in, day out, you know, ultimately a lot of the law firms strive to be very different, but often some of the stuff they do is very the same you know it's very transactional and very you know precedent driven with how they're approaching the challenges how do you adapt in your world to your everyday being different so we're we're highly responsible to supporting our frontline caseworkers we have networks called practice groups which are very similar to the knowledge sharing in law firms but they are there to create the content for our frontline caseworkers to be able to work the case as well. So you have to understand how it should have worked, the happy path. And obviously we start seeing sort of recurrent themes that could go wrong, you know, around claims or uh, currently the big issue we're seeing is around fraud and scams as well. So you do start to see patterns which you can share. One thing I wanted to understand was, so you have a structure in a law firm with PSLs and uh, you have research teams and you have technology to help control this knowledge. If we take the subject we're, we're driving through this sort of series around tacit knowledge, okay, surely, you know, the best examples that people have given to the table with these situations have all been in the head, right, because of worldly experiences. If we go back to what you were saying earlier about you follow the, the, the letter of the law, but then you apply yeah. this extra layer of knowledge and experience. So, you know, how do you, how do you bring all that together in one place? Obviously, the office environment really helped. We were all in place. You're immersed. You could hear conversations going over there. You could hear discussions about cases, tricky cases um, going about around about you. And we did have uh, a space, the practice groups, to, di- to discuss this. We also wrote a lot of our knowledge down, captured it in a point knowledge system, and then started doing, you know, cleverer stuff around it, codifying where we could, where there was a logic flow behind it. The really not bespoke end of things, the more sort of commoditized end of things. But it is that implicit knowledge, the conversations. It's a dying art. The things happening in the rooms, the corridor, the kitchen, is the art, you know, attending networks, groups, sharing conversational, conversational knowledge management is more difficult in this hybrid environment. And the tacit stuff, is really interesting because there's people who have been at the ombudsman in previous ombudsman schemes who've come over, who've been working for 20 odd years as ombudsmen, who know they don't even have to think about how they will approach an issue and the considerations they need to look at. They instinctively know and sometimes they're like, well, why don't you know that? And it's because I have not had 20 years of experience and your thought processes and your knowledge of the culture. And because we were all all together, 
and we could see that person really knows this area or how to tackle this issue or where where do I begin on uncovering sort of root causes here who has organizational knowledge which again is very implicit tacit side side of things who can I talk to where was this thing before where is it now it's much much harder because we had a place and now our playground has gone so to speak or we have to make a conscious conscious effort to recreate it by bringing people into the office where we can and it has to be far more formalized and planned and in a way a bit artificial it just used to happen we've got exactly the same here you know in our world we're trying to now almost rebuild the culture rebuild the ethos of our firm or our department if you want to call it that um because it's all gone right and that's so sad to say but that's something that this the current world we're living in has it's a fallout right of the situation and and you know to be you know to be a new joiner of of the ombudsman right now must be daunting because yes you've got uh, the, the technology it sounds like but it feels like you've got the technology on one side of the room but then the other side of the room by the virtual water cooler you've got this group of highly knowledgeable people that we just can't quite get access to in the same way anymore i think it's going to be really seen with the new joiner and succession planning as well, that this has been disruptive to that. So all throughout the last year, we were recruiting and we were onboarding and they, they did a remarkable job doing this remotely as well. And obviously this will continue in my team in the past month. I've got two new joiners Whereas, you know, you used to just sit them there and turn around yep. and explain an acronym or something like that. I think they're having to be a bit more robust and put their hands up and go, what have you just said? And again, if this is your first job and you haven't got that confidence and you've never worked in an office environment, how... how you know, you must be super confident, super resilient to, to handle that. Yeah. And people can't read body language. It's quite difficult. And I think I think from your organisation, it's probably the same across every organisation. Um, you know, that has been one of the one of those many challenges we've had to kind of navigate around i think and yeah i mean it's, i mean look we've we've seen inside everyone's homes now for the last however long we've learned different things about people that we wouldn't have actually learned in a professional world call it professional world in the office but at the same time if we think about our professional challenges i guess a question i'm thinking about with your situation is is there a concern or do you have a concern right now that because of this tacit knowledge essentially drifting potentially away because of the situation we're in the speed and turnaround but also the standard of which you're trying to maintain with the cases you're working on has changed because of that knowledge and the, the, the touch points you don't have anymore how, how does that make you feel because we had established groups for knowledge sharing which are, are the practice groups and the support my team provides continued because we had 
the technology, but we also realised quite quickly we've got to change the way we do things. For established people, it went well because we already had the relationships and the understanding and the rapport and absolutely we created a a new sort of online support system Mm -hmm. on our uh, knowledge platform to for people to ask. We used to have helplines. We transferred that completely over to an uh, online form. So we adapted and actually it was an improvement on what we had previously. But it is the, I think it's the, the sort of medium term, longer term side of things where you have an existing group of people now, you, you know who they are, but it's what, well, what if one of them retires what if one of them leaves and we know people, the great resignation is happening? What what then? So, and what happens if five people leave at different layers? It's at that point, you it gets quite disruptive. So how do you plan for that? As a knowledge manager, how do you, how do you plan for that? It's more now, we've, we have an awareness that we have to... Yeah plan for that and we have to take more active actions to a capture stuff more effectively and make sure that there are opportunities for implicit knowledge sharing and it is that kind of building the networks building the contents allowing groups to come in and also understanding the value of sort of face-to-face contact versus remote. So remote, I love. It's very, very productive. How good it is for knowledge sharing and development and all that good stuff. It puts the onus on, on the individual. And the individual, of course, will always want to do the best by you know consumers their internal clients and maybe not work so much on themselves because the problem is in front of you so i i was speaking to a colleague about this and we were talking about the the working world of of how it is now and, and you know and someone said to me you know now in the new world i search a lot but when i was working in the office i asked a lot does that make sense yes and I think that's that's such a good identification of the situation we're in now, especially with knowledge management. Is now I'm, you know, I'm searching a lot for stuff through search platforms, IT systems, you know, in whatever it is you're using to to find that information. But the older world, you know, that water cooler experience, like we're talking about here, that whole you know osmosis of information was you would ask a lot and you would listen a lot. And now you are all sat in our little worlds. No one's listening. No one's listening anymore. We're just trying to find our own way, right? Which is, oh, look, it's fascinating, fascinating stuff. So if I just think about how a law firm works and how they're using the repositories that they have, and it's a big engine, you know, a typical law firm has a huge amount of data. And 
you know, we often, I have often asked that question to, to lawyers is, you know, how, how long do you keep the state for? How far do you go back? You know, because a lawyer, mm-hmm. a lawyer, you know, almost famously hates to delete anything. Oh, we might need that. We might need that. You know, and I remember the days of the box files and you would go into law firms offices and there'd be Iron Mountain or Blue Mountain, so the big, big box files. And I remember walking to a managing partner, partner's office and I couldn't see him. And I had to go around this labyrinth maze of boxes, you know, floor to ceiling. And he was, his desk was in the corner and uh, and it was just an amazing sight you know and it was a traditional partner's office where he had two desks one with a, a computer on it we still had the dust cover over the top of it I mean he had a desk to write on and that was a long time ago now obviously it probably doesn't really happen anymore but you know from your side you know in your world you know h- how do you manage that data right you know in terms of the plan of the future and, and how but also I guess the question is are you controlling the amount of data that you have in your world because there is a lot of data highly sensitive highly irrelevant maybe now I don't know. You know, what do you do with all this data? So for us, we do have a different landscape from law firms when it comes to knowledge. So I think we sort of have the equivalent of presidents, but they're not the obviously the template stuff. We do have some template stuff, some codification, and, and we do have codification tools. But we and we've yeah, we've automated certain certain things the the content we have is the crown jewels it is what we know what we've written and it's far more it's heavily curated so actually the thing in my mind of when we started creating the collection for the needs of an organizational change that we were going through at the time was actually practical law strangely so it was um that's the kind of structure that we based it on rather than a law firm structure. But then the law firms obviously heavily use practical law. For us, practical law is very law firm focused. So it's not our focus. So we have to create our own version of practical law, but obviously at a smaller scale. And actually the practical law example was really good because we followed your principles of like, don't create more than you have to, you know, get rid of stuff, uh, link it heavily. So we used all those, again, learning that's not out there in the world, but has come sort of implicitly through conversations with Thomson Reuters. And we went, oh, yeah, no, that that will work for us here. So we don't we we um don't have the equivalent of like reference documents like sample documents good work from the past really apart from obviously we publish all our decisions on our website and but we we don't really and we have templates for yep. our letters and, and things like that but the actual hardcore of the decision we we don't really do that because of the nature of our work we have to look at the complaint in front of us but knowing uh, having worked at law firms oh my gosh they really 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 love past work <laughs> and this is why search now i think has become so important because yep. we've certainly i think we were very much a search orientated organization particularly in the knowledge system i think that's even more embedded we did a survey in, in september and it was like, I think 80% of people preferred to search above 
browsing or using a mixture. And so therefore, where a PSL used to go, oh, that's a really good example of that for the issue that you need to look at. We haven't got that mediation. So the content needs to be, you know, tagged up properly. Yeah. Fresh. You need to curate it. So there's far more of a curation piece going on and again like who gets to curate right who does that who decides which is often a very tacit knowledge of going yeah that one's really good that's a duplicate of that one don't worry about that that one was really good three years ago but not so good anymore oh but it's really lovely wordsmithed oh but i want to keep it but actually is it dangerous and again, this is this comes back to what you're saying about you know our experience, right? And that's the mm. knowledge. And it's it feels like you know it, it, I don't want to say it, but like you know, it feels like you know a, a good quality knowledge manager is almost like is like I wouldn't say a dying breed, but it's certainly uh, it's it's a skill set that has become specialised. You know, almost like a blacksmith mm. or a chimney sweep or something. It's like these these skills that people have over years and years of of working. It's mm. and it's become there. And so, so I guess look, I guess we don't know who's going to listen to these conversations. Hopefully, someone does. But uh, you know, if if someone was to to land into this conversation now and you know and just be thinking about oh knowledge management, I'd love to. Maybe I should do that. I, I'm quite interested in that. You know, you've got years of experience. You know, what's good about your job? As a knowledge manager, why do you like doing it? Why do you keep turning up? So basically, I like knowledge management because it's quite a generalist role. And it absolutely utilises all my tacit knowledge. And I'm quite a curious person as well. Right. So it could be trying to understand how pet insurance works. But it equally could be understanding, oh, you went on holiday to where? Oh, that sounds interesting. Oh, yeah, I might consider that. I do, I, you know, I do like building networks, people understanding their point of view as well. So an IT person will have a very different set of priorities to my set of priorities if we're looking at a knowledge system. And it's it's understanding that, but also being empathetic to what they need, but also trying to encourage them to listen to what uh, I need, where where I'm coming from. So it's kind of a, a well-rounded view. So yeah, I I just love information. You have to be curious. You have to be diplomatic. You have to be totally neutral, and you have to you know be able to sort of mediate with lots of people potentially. It sounds like. Yes. And because where I've come from in the knowledge side of things as a generalist, I don't really have skin in the game when it comes to experts and specialisms because my specialism is information services and knowledge management. But actually, really, you you want the, the people that know about motor insurance or should the sprocket you know, survive more than five years in this particular make of car. I can't add anything to that conversation at all. So I am heavily reliant on experts, but expertise, you know, is always a wonderful thing to hear and people to hear their their passion yeah, as well like really excites them. Very good. Um, and actually hearing people's passion and 
the, the depths of considerations that they look at, I might not understand all the issues or certainly be able to keep it in my head, but I'll remember the person and I'll remember that, yeah, they're the guy I really need to talk to if we need something on motor insurance or, or consumer credit. Yeah because they've been able to explain it to me in simple terms and I haven't got confused. And trust me, when it comes to financial services, I can get confused very quickly because it's a world of complexity and a lot of jargon. So something we've been doing over this sort of mini-series is it's spawned from an, sort of an idea I have is that I truly believe that every knowledge manager has a different definition of what a knowledge manager does. And I've found this to be true so far. So I guess a question I'd like to ask is, can you define what a knowledge manager does? No, because (laughs) I think knowledge is heavily linked to culture. So there are certain things, there's certain knowledge management techniques. So uh, communities of practice, the whole implicit, explicit, tacit concepts. What do you capture? What do you write down? What are you, does your culture encourage conversation, network? Have you got a rapid turnover of people? So you're rarely going to get widespread tacit knowledge unless, of course, the people are just moving around the same sector. So you know, sectorally, you'll get a lot of tacit knowledge. So it it depends. But the key concepts, you know, succession planning, after action review, lessons learned, all that good stuff, you can apply, but you always have to modify based on the culture and the organisational needs and strategy. Yep. I understand. And certainly, you know, I came in, So law firms, I know, uh, goes, we are going to capture what we've done in the past and our way of doing things through precedence. But there's a certain level where we're just not going to do. We're not going to explain what insurance misrepresentation is because I've got practical law for that. We're not going to keep, you know, old law reports in hard copy. You know, we're not going to do that because we now have, you know, suppliers that are very good at that in the same way we probably won't do all our training ourselves, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's drawing the line of what do you have to do in-house because you are either fairly unique and there's not a supplier that can fill your needs completely. Is it a problem? Is succession planning a problem for you? You can't do everything. So you, you do have to choose. And the other thing, of course, is Things change. We mature. Evolution. We're constantly evolving, right? We're constantly evolving. And what we used to do might not be needed anymore, or it might be needed in a different way, or we have to do something new. So um, I like knowledge management is because the organisational changes around you and you respond to that using the the discipline of knowledge management but again I've brought in you know I've brought in certainly my procurement expertise I've brought in my having awareness of the legal information market as well Amazing. has helped 
managing teams, you know, how you have a conversation with people, a difficult conversation. All of this helps networking skills, all helps really. So you, you could say that you are at the heart of your firm or your company as a, you know, as a generic knowledge manager, you're at the heart of that firm of the trajectory they're going, but also you've got the knowledge of where they've come from to give you, you know, the opportunity to give the best mm. advice and information to your, to service your, your workforce. Yeah. So. so the danger of knowledge management really is complacency. Right. You know, things can work and then they don't work anymore. Mm. And you were really proud of something like four years ago and it's like, well, is it true now? Is it true? Yep. So I really like the constant engagement of with users and, and looking how they are behaving, you know, using metrics about our systems and, and, and data that way and, and going, oh, why is that happening then? <laughs> Kathy, thank you so much for coming into the office today and giving us a little bit of an insight into the financial ombudsman world and understanding some of your pain points and some of your ideas. And so, uh, yeah, thank you again. And hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Lovely. It was lovely to speak to you, Ben. Thank you. The Knowledge Series. For more information, go to legalsolutions.thompsonreuters.co.uk.